0: Said
1: so this is the weirdest thing you've done all week. This is literally the weirdest thing I've done all week, but it's been an exceptionally unweird week. Yeah, uh, I've, I've barely left the house. I can barely do anything. It's the middle of July. I have like thirty-five things I want to do. that I'm just like, man, nah, maybe I'll just stay on this couch.
0: It's just like a, a a New York summertime heat situation.
1: Yeah, I guess. I mean, something. I think there's something like a like a vibration of laziness. Yeah. Wafting off all of humanity within a ten-mile radius, and then people tend to shut down. I, I went to this thing last night that that always is attended by a bunch of my friends, and very few of them were there. And I was like, I looked at your Facebook. I know you're not
0: out of town,
1: you know. So clearly, people were like, man, I want to walk six blocks. Yeah, you know.
0: Yeah, it's and it's. You know, it's it's what July? It's like mid July. <laughs> it's the end of July. It's the end of July, but like it, it started it's it started in June this year, it feels like. What the laziness? The 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 just oppressive heat. Oh.
1: Well, I mean I think it's we haven't had like a real horrible, terrible, awful hating life heat yeah. yet. And personally the winner was just such a motherfucker this year that I'm I'm almost grateful for the heat. Like, I like when it's a hot day. I'm like, please. let don't this know. Last. I saw.
0: I was watching. A, I, was, I was. I was watching the weather report, and somebody said something along the lines of, "Like, yeah, I remember back in January when you were wishing that it was this." Hot. I, was like, I
1: don't ever. I never wish
0: for this. Like, no. I,
1: su- a, th- I suppose not.
0: There's not a lot of middle ground in, no, in in New York City weather.
1: No, I think this is going to be. This is going to be a big year of people leaving New York. Yeah, yeah. Not so much for the heat, but for the cold. I think people are like,
0: like actually moving away w- w- from the city.
1: Moving away from the city. Like people have really kind of, kind of reached their limit with rent and space. Yeah. And then you know the cold. They're just like, fuck this, man. I'm going to. Th- Austin. That's the yeah. that's the
0: straw. That uh, mm-hmm. everybody's going to Austin. Austin,
1: Nashville. A lot of people to L. A. Actually. Yeah. Um, which is surprising because I
0: know all the comedians have made a mess. Exodus to Los Angeles. Yes.
1: Yeah. All the comedians are, are definitely. But that makes sense,
0: right? I mean, that's a, yeah. like they all—they've got their TV shows that they're. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, they have, you know, as many opportunities out there as they do around here. So that—that's uh, reasonably sensible. It's—it's um, it's curious how nobody's, like, like I've—I've I've always liked. LA, I've I've always thought it was interesting and enjoyed being there, but you know there's sort of this habitual kind of "ha ha" LA is bad thing yep. from New Yorkers. I'm from Northern
0: California, so I've got that like oh, double
1: right. right, right. There you have it. I think there's a notable absence of that in among New Yorkers <laughs> moving moving out there. Like you don't hear yeah. a lot of, we're not even. I mean, obviously, if you're moving out there. You're not going to. Talk shit about it, but yep. people that are like, they're like, oh, so and so's moving to L.A. Not like, oh, so and so's moving to L.A. It's like, like everyone's.
0: I mean, you know, I, 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 you know, I've been here for about, God, what, 10, 11 years, mm-hmm. and and I, I, I definitely, I definitely think about it on a fairly regular basis of of, of uh-huh. moving somewhere else. Um. Yeah. And now, and now that like you know, I I've, I I was doing um office stuff for for most of that time, and now I'm freelancing, and it feels like there's less there's less keeping me here, you know that because you know you can work you can work from Indeed. anywhere. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, there's there, there's not a lot of reason to be here unless you're doing something that can only be done here, or if you're in your initial romantic
0: period. Oh yeah. You mean your early twenties? Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> or just like yeah. you know, uh, even that you know if you if you you know wander around Manhattan as a tourist and you're like oh, I want to live here. It's worth it only if you can live in the actual part that you romanticize yeah. not like live in Ridgewood and take the L yeah. train to Union Square every day, you know. If you can actually have the fantasy life, you know, then that's that I think is worthwhile. And maybe worthwhile like spending all your money, you know. Like I have a I have a sort of I guess she's my second cousin but she's my cousin's daughter. And she really wants to move to New York, and she just got out of college. And it's like, if you have to be here, or if you can figure out a way to be in the Manhattan that you romanticize, yeah. then it's worth it. Otherwise, you know, it's really just kind of going to the dogs. It's,
0: well, it, and, it, and it it is it is in both directions. It's kind of interesting that you say, I mean, because, you know, the traditional thing to romanticize is, is Manhattan. is like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Broadway and Sex in the City and all that. Right. But like... On the other side we're we're over here romanticizing the, the shitty New York, which is also right going away. Yeah,
1: well I mean it's for me it's pretty much gone away. I yeah. mean, like I guess if you go to Avenue D there's still a whiff of it. But um you know, I feel very unwelcome in the East Village on the Lower East Side. I mean, not, not that anybody's like, you know, uh new waiver go home or any yeah. you know. Nobody's throwing of, things no, at you. Nobody's throwing things. But it's huh. it's uh you know, you just walk around there, and you think, "Wow, you know, like I spent my teens and my twenties like running around here, and there's there's just no place for me here anymore." You know, I mean, there's a couple of, mm-hmm. um, I guess, Yaffa is still open, and mm-hmm. Mogador, and yeah, there's uh, a little bit
0: of Saint Marks Yeah, there's yeah.
1: A, there's like a little little bit of, of what was what, um, but for the most part, you know, like I I spent a couple of years in my twenties in the, uh, the 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 area that. That was nameless at the time, but is now Nolita. <laughs> and that that is like genuinely off-putting to be around there and to be like, you know, uh, like this is just not the land of my people at all anymore. Like, no, my 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 people do not dwell here; they have wandered to the plains.
0: You know, t- speaking of like not, you know, of just kind of like sitting in your 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 apartment all day. I mean, that was. And that was the thing about, like, living in the city. Even, like, I've never actually lived in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. You know, I've been bouncing back and forth between Brooklyn and Queens. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the idea that you can go out any night of the week and go see something, blah, blah, blah. Right. But if you're not actually doing that...
1: And if, yeah, and it costs money to go to those
0: places. Yeah, and it costs money, it it technically costs money to stay at home, you know,
1: like... Yeah, yeah, true. Um, You know, like, people that, that... you know, decide they want to live in their dream neighborhood, or generally like prisoners of their house. You know, yeah. um, plus there's all these like, like people, you end up spending money on takeout, and you end up. I weaned myself off of takeout, which is kind of a big deal. Um, Do you cook? Eh, I prepare, I guess. Okay. You, know? you heat? I heat. Yes, I know how to work a rice cooker and how to you know make pasta and toast, but. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I rarely go out. Um, you know, I, I have friends that are, like, broke, and they go out to eat twice a day. Yeah. You know. Um, but people end up spending money on that. Drinking in this city is, like, ridiculous. If you, I don't drink, so, yeah. you know, I can't even imagine. But I quit drinking long before the $10 PBR yeah, you know, so it's like you know, you go out with some friends and you know, you
0: go home 150 dollars poorer. You know, I actually, I, I actually weaned myself off of the 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 diet coke. <laughs> oh, did <laughs> was, you really? That was a tough one. Yeah, that was sort of like the last. I mean, I'm not like you know, I, I I drink a bit, but do you drink caffeine at all? I drink caffeine. I drink. I I don't have a problem with caffeine. It was like the aspartame <laughs> chemically. Yeah, yeah. Nah, yeah. yeah. yeah, I feel yeah. that. So now, yeah, now, now I'm, now I'm a dick because I'm talking about <laughs> <laughs> Taiko Koiro. Quite all right. Um, so I was, I was saying, I was saying earlier that um, uh, that, you, that your name had come up because you, you played a friend of mine's stoop sale. Yeah, indeed, the Sto- uh, Joe Garden stoop sale. Yeah. And then I got a great vine
1: out of him of him holding my chihuahua while wearing a cat mask. He had this cat mask. He was I didn't realize selling. that was your chihuahua. That was my okay. chihuahua. Yep. Yeah. Oh yeah.
0: And so, so you said you said you'll play anything at this point. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Well, I mean,
1: you're, you're, if Joe Garden asks you to play sure. a stoop sale, it's a little different. Than, Just because,
0: like, you know, it's a it's a weird thing. It's to weird, ask, so yeah. We it's do.
1: weird and interesting, yeah. and you know, I like weird and interesting things in my life.
0: It's a nice thing about being a guy with a guitar, though, right? Is
1: you can go anywhere, you can play anywhere. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I do comedy shows all the time. You know, um, I can do. I mean, most of the time when I do a comedy show, I don't even use a mic. Hmm. You know, I just... Depending on the size of the room. I mean, you know, alternative comedy. Um, you know, I, I don't mic myself up at all. I just project.
0: How did you... I Because I, you, you, you mentioned that in in the book. I mean, you mentioned, like, Largo a little bit in your book. Uh-huh. Um, Luna. a oh, Luna. Yeah. Sorry, I'm mixing my coasts Conflating up. your coasts. <laughs> what... Uh, you could tell how old I am. That I, neither of those really—it's just—it's just like these are these are these like alliterative things that people talk about. Yeah, on Mark these are iconic.
1: <laughs> yeah. Do they talk about Luna a lot on Marin's podcast?
0: I guess Luna it's was a ago. huge yeah, part was, of my life. Yeah. You know. But um, how did you uh, how did you sort of end up in the comedy orbit?
1: Well, um, I have a friend who's a friend of Liam McEnany's. Uh, who does a show called "Tell Your Friends" that he used to do weekly at Lolita Bar? Now he does monthly or semi-monthly at the Bell House. Um, but he, you know, he invited me down to play some songs, and I was like, I'll try anything." This was like four years ago, five yeah. years ago. And then when I was when I played that show, I met Marianne Ways, who produces Wyatt Cenac's show mm-hmm. and a bunch of other shows. Um, she yeah. produced uh, Kristen Schaal and Kurt Brown show. I got on that show. Um, people in general were kind of the, the comedians were, you know, kind of surprised that I was so into it. But I was <laughs> so into it. And, like it you was know, slumming or something? No, no. It w- it's yeah, it's their great audience. Well, they thought it was like it was like, why would you want to play a comedy show? And yeah. I was like, dude, it's so much better than playing rock shows, and you know, I envy that. You know, comedians' lifestyle of having like five gigs and five venues a night, and you go and you play ten minutes, and then you
0: go somewhere else, and you know, you sort of cruise all around town. Just, just sort of the um, the, the ability to do that. I mean, there was, I mean, that was something that you used to kind of be able to do in in New York, right? I mean, there were there with were music. Open, yeah, there were I, places you could just. I
1: guess, I mean, there there were certainly open mics. There was a g- really good one run by Latch, the Anti-Folk guy. Mm. Um, at uh, when I was doing it was at um, Chameleon on I think it was East 6th Street mm-hmm. in East Village East 6th and I and it um, basically anybody who became quasi famous playing an acoustic guitar uh, went through there I mean you know from Beck to Lisa Loeb to yeah. you know somebody like Pale Face Moldy Peaches <laughs> well he, he tried it in a bunch of different places uh, and then I think it really kind of Became famous at Sidewalk, yeah. The anti-folk open mic. And that was when Moldy Peaches came around, and uh, uh, what's her, uh, Regina Specter and then a couple of other sort of well-known folky, anti-folky, mm-hmm. acousticy people. Um, but it was never it was never a situation where you know you could like cruise around and. Um, you know, just have like five gigs a night where you play two songs everywhere. And in fact, as, as open mics, they were largely, you know, you'd play to an audience of people waiting to play an open mic. Yeah. No, like yeah. Everybody's sitting in the audience with an acoustic guitar waiting to go on stage.
0: Yeah, so, so literally nobody's enjoying themselves.
1: Li- yeah, everyone's just thinking about getting on stage. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, there's no... There, there, there was, in my day... Uh, there was nothing analogous to comedy. I mean, you know, you read about whatever MacDougal Street in 1968, and it seems sure. that way. But sure. yeah, yeah.
0: Um, I mean, I, you know, the, the upside, I guess, the upside of playing playing a show where people know you is that people know you. you know? Yeah. Well, but the the thing about playing music shows is people talk. Comedy audiences are better because they're they're more respectful.
1: Yeah, I mean, they're just more... They're going to see a show, you know? They want to hear the show, you know? Um, You go on stage and people are like, oh, music, cool, let's listen, you know? Um, Whereas in a music show, there's a, you know, usually a small minority of the audience, you know, like 5% of the crowd, and that screaming child is one of them, um, The they just think you know I'm in a bar I can make all the goddamn noise I want yeah. I mean even sometimes like you're in a playing a theater and people think like well because it's a rock show I can talk all I want and it is really like it is sort of turning into a cultural crisis like I saw this is a, re- this is a relatively recent thing that it's gotten so bad and you know like I saw um, a- they turned it into a a yeah. GIF of um, uh, Tom York yelling "Shut the fuck up!" Yeah, at the audience. Yeah. Shut the fuck! You, could, you know, like Tom fucking York. Yeah, like, like, yeah, Radiohead. Yeah, <laughs> some people have gone are, are really into hearing that guy. Yeah, and you know, somebody's like, "Well, I saw the bird. I'm gonna go get a haircut and blah 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 blah. Hmm. You sandwich, but you know, yeah." Um, If, like, like people that are really, really beloved by many are having that problem, it's a problem. And I just, there was some, there's a think piece about this that shows up, like, now every month. And this was, this might have been in the Chicago Reader, but it was somebody at a really big show. (laughs) It was, like, you know, like some huge band, and there was people blabbing behind them. And it is really, um, it's really perplexing. Um, mostly because the venues and the promoters don't feel like they can do anything about it. Or they have to. Yeah. You know, you'll be in a, a club watching some gentle acoustic singer-songwriter standing behind somebody who's like... You know, and the bartender's just standing there looking bored. It's like, dude, say, hey, excuse me, you gotta shut up. I mean, look, when I play a bar... And it's like everybody in the bar is talking totally cool my job is to play a bar my job is not to police anybody's behavior I don't deserve any special treatment I'm like the you know the busboy or the bartender I'm just working but if I have like 95 people who came to hear songs and they're being quiet and they're listening and their night is being ruined by five motherfuckers like it just makes me so angry, you know. First of all, because like, I want these people to come back. <laughs> like, I want them to be like, I spent twenty bucks on the ticket. I bought a bunch of drinks. What a worthwhile night! I'm going back. But people are going to be like, you know, there's some drunk talking behind you, and
0: fuck it, I don't want to go back to that. So is this? I mean, is this at all a reflection of your, you know, becoming more, becoming quieter with your music? Well, certainly. Like, if if,
1: if I was in a big loud band. I would I would be less concerned about yeah. it, um, you know. And in fact, if you're in a big loud band and there's somebody blabbing behind you, you're not going to notice because the music's so loud. But it, you know, people don't pay to hear somebody else talking. Mm. Like they do, you know, like unless it's the person on the stage. Unless it's the per- yeah, I, I almost killed somebody at a magnetic magnetic field show. <laughs> almost killed him. <laughs> Because I was like... Funny the first
0: time anyone's ever said that. Yeah,
1: <laughs> Possibly. Um, and, and it was just like... And I, I was just like, will you please shut the fuck up? And the guy just looked at me bewildered. Yeah. Oh, another time I was at a Mason Jennings show. And I, I was like, excuse me, could you like... It was in the Mercury Lounge. I was like, could you, could you go out to the other bar if you want to talk? And he said, are you serious? I was like, yeah, I'm serious. I came to see Mason goddamn Jennings. I your stupid bro ass getting drunk and
0: you know that's that's. I mean, th- 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 there is an interesting distinction though of um, between music and and comedy. I was, I was talking to a, a stand-up comedian friend about this, and this was their way of, of making like, the complaint on the other mm. side of you know like the sort of classic like drunk bachelorette party, right? Anything, and the point they were making is, and you know, and and I, underst- I understand this is. is you know, I, I, I guess people do, but less often do people say, you know, let's go see, you know, music versus let's go see right. comedy as this sort right. of like abstract notion of I a mean, thing that you could... It's like going, bowl, like let's go bowling, let's right. go see comedy. I, I mean, I I envy that.
1: I really envy that. Uh, you know, uh, I would love to have a crowd that showed up that was just like, oh, we want to see some singer songwriters. Hmm. Would absolutely love that. And um, I mean, I, I understand their complaint. Um and believe me, I understand about that bachelorette party. <laughs> um but I think like I don't know, I, it's I mean come to think of it, why doesn't the venue shut those people up too? You know? Like because they're the ones buying all the drinks, like I imagine. You, well, <laughs> they're here here's the thing, is they're not the people buying all the drinks. They're five of the one hundred people buying drinks, and like the other ninety-five may never come back.
0: It's interesting to me to to hear you say that you envy that, though, because you know you've you've been building up this very you know this this strong fan base over the years, right? I, I I,
1: I mean, I love having an intense audience, and you know I make my living off them. I have I have super healthy crowdfunding campaigns that. Everybody jumps in, and they're super into it, and, you know, it is a good scene all the way. Um, I do wish I had the opportunity to play for more people who had absolutely no yeah. expectations, who had just walked in like, you know, I have I have no idea what I'm going to hear. I don't know, um, you know, people come in with, like, a set list in their head. They're like, I want to hear this song and this song and this song and this song. And,
0: you know, so... There's almost a built-in disappointment when you don't play those songs.
1: Exactly, yeah. Oh. And, you know, and you have to be mindful that to, to do something vital and interesting in the long run, you have to play the stuff that intrigues you as an artist. You have to put on a good show from the heart as opposed to... Just kind of you know, rolling your eyes back, falling asleep while still being awake and playing the hits. Um, but yeah, there's always there's always somebody that wants to hear the single. Yeah. Who you know is I, I remember this great story. of A friend of mine went to see one of the Yes reunions, <laughs> and a guy stood behind him yelling,
0: "Roundabout,
1: roundabout!" Like, after, like. The whole time, and he was too timid to turn around and say, "Listen, they're going to end with roundabout. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's yeah. going to be the last yeah. song, you know." But the whole show, roundabout, roundabout. Finally, they come off the encore. They do roundabout, and then immediately the guy goes,
0: "Owner of a lonely heart."
1: <laughs> so you know, like Which that was guy, the next song in the encore. exactly, exactly. Yeah. Like there's always that guy. But but,
0: like, you, but that's. I mean, you're almost kind of asking for that with the reunion show. That's the whole. Isn't that the whole driving force behind the reunion show?
1: Absolutely, and that's that's one good reason to not do reunion shows. I mean, uh, I'm thinking about because it's the 10th anniversary of Haughty Melodic, which uh, was my first like sort of major studio solo album, and it it has become like the iconic album of my career so I'm thinking about doing some shows where I go out and play it in its entirety. Yeah. yeah. Um, which I which is kind of the same thing. I guess one of the good things about doing an, a show of of a particular album is everybody knows where the songs are. <laughs> so it's like like you know that track 8 is going to be your misfortune. You know it. <laughs> you don't have to yell out for it because you've
0: listened to the album. So so are you I mean, so you just you need to just kind of put your head down and, and move on from songs after after a certain point. True, sir. I mean, if you dislike playing a song,
1: it's not a good idea to play yeah. it. It is not a good idea for you or the audience or you know, in the long run of your life, economically and personally.
0: What? But what? What is it that you know? Obviously, at some point, every single song you've written probably has meant something to you, and sure. So. You know what what happens between between then and now what makes you hate a song you've written? I mean, to be honest i don't I don't really hate any songs that I've
1: written. There's some that I'm just not interested in, but those songs I've like never played. Yeah. what happens is I become you know intensely moved and fascinated by other songs, and the problem is not so much. Playing the song that is more familiar to me than not playing the song that is more engaging mm-hmm. to me, and I, I can only do as an artist what I like from other artists, which is artistry you know which is you know actual commitment and involvement and passion in what you 're doing so I wouldn 't really know how to be the guy that just plays the hits I,
0: I just you know <laughs> almost commercial self-sabotage, <laughs> from self-sabotage. And
1: I would say in fact not I would I would say that if I had not struggled to get an audience that listens to yeah. what I do now and that is expecting me to throw these curveballs and expecting to hear a show that you know has a runs the gamut of my discography that this that the the crowd would dwindle mm-hmm. you know the the, the vital crowd, Comes from engagement uh, in your current work,
0: so. So it was, but it was. Um, I mean, it's it still, it still must have been hard. I mean, especially after um, you know you're 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 doing the band thing. You've got mm. you've got some success to really just just step on the brakes, you know, to really just sort of almost start from scratch. Well, yeah, I mean, I absolutely started from scratch. I I was lucky when
1: I quit soul coughing in that I had uh, an album that had gotten around on Napster. Mm. Called Skittish. It was a it was an acoustic album, complete one hundred and eighty from soul coughing, and it had somehow gotten out into the bloodstream of the universe, and so, I I remember I did did a show at a Princeton dining club. Princeton has this very weird institution of these dining clubs. A lot of
0: like like white ties or
1: what? No, I, I guess it probably was at one point, but it's just like you yeah.
0: join a cafeteria. It's, okay, I, I don't really so not understand. like Skull and Bones. No,
1: they're, they're very exclusive and fancy, and you have to join them, and yeah. almost frat-like in that Really nice cafeteria at a cafeteria. Really nice wood-paneled cafeteria. <laughs> but so I played a show, when it wasn't, I didn't play lunch or anything, they, they actually they cleared it out and they did a show there, but somebody had posted real love, the words real love, printed out on a piece of paper, 8 by 10 piece of fax paper, and glued it to a rafter. So I looked up and I was like, that's funny. I, I, I play a cover of a Mary J. Blige song by that name. How strange. And this was like within a week of Soul coughing breaking up. And it was only until later, that, only later that it dawned upon me that like, they were requesting that song. <laughs> like, like people have the album and they listen to the album and they wanted to hear it. Did you acknowledge that you had seen it all? You just looked up. I just looked. I, I it had... I had yeah. No suspicion that anybody had heard the album Because I fucking hated Napster Like everybody else in music you, at the time Do you know how it got out into the world? I think what what happened was uh, It was produced by um, A guy named Kramer Who uh, ran a label called Shimmy Disc And famously did Galaxy 500 albums a Low albums This great yeah. reverb yeah. sound uh, Was in the band Bongwater with mm. Ann Magnuson um, and I think he just got annoyed that it had not been released. So I think yeah. he... My suspicion is he personally put it out
0: there. So were you... Um, at that point, you had already... Thank you very much. I mean, it, you know, it, it, you, you record the soul, the, the solo album. The band is still around. Mm-hmm. Um, you had already moved on to yeah, that well, music, the, though. I mean, the... The, the solo album it came from two things. One,
1: I saw a show... At Fez, barely attended, where I had I did not know either of the artists, but it was Elliot Smith and the Magnetic mm. Fields. I mean, can you imagine? Good thing to stumble into. Yes, yeah. and it was just a friend of mine that was like, it was like, ah, oh, you know, I'm meeting Carrie later. Do you want to come to Fez? I was like, oh, yeah, sure. You know, got me in for free. You know, and you know, it's like not not many people in the room, and it was Fez, which was. Uh, this club on Lafayette Street that was so far in the basement. You could hear the six train mm. rumbling under mm-hmm. it. Uh, Stephen Merritt clear, clearly was very unhappy with the sound mix. Um, but it was just like my jaw hit the floor. It was the most amazing... Can can you imagine? <laughs> like, you know, like, you know, the first time you hear Elliot, so you yeah. like getting chills thinking about it. I'm just going to go to a show yeah. at the Cavern Club. Yeah, just, oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, and and the, and you know, for me, those are Elliot Smith and the yeah. Magnetic Fields are their the my favorite artists, hmm. my favorite favorite artists, like the most impactful to my life. Um, you know, I mean, among others, but like, but to huge. the point of, I Zeppelin, yeah, you know, it's like along with Sam Sam Cook and Led Zeppelin. Um So yeah, and I saw that and I was like. I really like acoustic music. I got my start at, in the anti-folk world yeah. playing acoustic guitar. I'm gonna go back to this shit.
0: It, it's interesting. I mean, you must you must have been in a point where where you were more open to that kind of influence because you know I, you you talked about Jeff Buckley, uh-huh. sure. obviously very 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 influential artist to yes. to a lot of oh, people, yes. but he didn't. I mean, did he didn't really, he? You weren't at a point where he was able to exert that kind of influence on over you? On me? No, yeah. he was just
1: a, like a local guy that I knew that was way better looking than everybody else. <laughs> it was just like you know. I mean, he was he was great. Everybody liked him. Yeah. You know, but it, I liked Babe the Blue Ox and Homer Erotic too. You know, just the other
0: local bands. <laughs> you know, wandering around New York. Um, I'm just wondering though. I'm you know, if the, it, it sounds like the sort of stars align in such a way where you were open to such a thing
1: well I mean I I obviously I love Grace um, the Jet Buckley album for those not in the know Um, but he's not you know like it's you know like the magnetic fields are like the Beatles to me Elliot Smith is like Led Zeppelin. So, you, so like, you, you,
0: uh, you, I, I guess what you, I'm asking is you, you think you could have been at any point? And I think I could have been, been at
1: any been point happened. in my goddamn life. I yeah. think it could have been running a polka band at age 60. Yeah. And if I had heard those two on the same night for the first time, yeah. it would have changed my life. Yeah. The other thing that happened was that uh, we had just finished making um, Irresistible Bliss, our mm-hmm. second album, which... Was a nightmare to make because my band did not want to play the songs that I wrote, and the first album I had basically either written everything or taken things from jams and said, "You play this here, I'll put this vocal over it." And you know, we were just a shitty local band, and yeah. everyone everyone in and the band played another band. Yeah, yeah. Well, they weren't kids; they were in their thirties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But you um, were, but I was a kid, and they were just like, "All right, whatever," you know, like. We're in a bunch of other bands, we'll, we'll just do this. And then it seemed that when we started making records, they became very invested in me not being really that important <laughs> to the band. Like, and it sounds totally crazy, but yeah. they really, like, they decided that I was not the songwriter, that what I was doing was just sort of concurrent to what they were doing. And so I would come in and say, "Okay, do this beat," and they would go, "Nope, no, no, that's a terrible idea. Why are you bringing ideas in? These are terrible. You're not even a musician." Like it was really weird. Um, and we did it, did it seem weird at the time. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I was so full of you know self-loathing that you know it seemed like okay, well, naturally, yeah. I'm a piece of shit. But yeah, when you you know we had made we made this album with. um this producer David Kahn, who later did Sublime and Sugar Ray and Regina Specter and and he'd done he'd done a bunch of artists before that. He, he was Fishbones oh, wow. producer, yeah. yeah. Like that was that's what's how he made his bones a fishbone. No pun intended. No, Sorry. I really did not, yes. No. I totally stumbled <laughs> into that. Um no, he made his trombones. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's good. Yeah. That's very good. Um But we had made this album that it was like it was like, Okay, this is a fucking great album. Yeah. You know, we're ready, you know, this is gonna we're gonna sell a lot of records, we're gonna be the Beastie Boys, this is fantastic. And they redid the album. (laughs) My bandmates undid everything that he did and I just had to stand there and watch and um you know, I'm sure I have his version of it on a cassette somewhere, but I'm a very bad archivist, and I was stoned at the time. Um, so that was this really traumatic experience that made me think, I want to do an album that I'm yeah. just going to fucking get done. Yeah, It's going to be everything I want it to be. How to do that? Be the only instrumentalist on it? Um, it was also that making that album was such a drawn-out process, and even in working with David Kahn, as we made the album, um, I was like, I'm not going to let this go on too long, because the longer you work on something, the more adulterated it gets, so at like 18 days, literally 18 days, we had this record that was, I thought was absolutely amazing, and and I was just like, I'm going to try really hard to not get David Kahn to fuck this up, to put too much, like that's my mission. And you know, it turned out to be that my bandmates, you know, spent four or five months just putting weird shit on it, taking good shit out, you know, uh, you know. So I made skittish the the acoustic album with Kramer in a day, yeah, one day. Recorded everything in a
0: day. Came back the next day. We mixed it one day. Has that? Um, have you have you taken that that approach since? <laughs> I think it's.
1: I, I, I think it's bad for albums to spend more time in the studio
0: yeah
1: I think it's good to spend more time writing you know so, but once you get into a studio it, it's it's such a clinical environment that you kind of hear it too abstractly and you'll want to um
0: like things that you just wouldn't bother you at all yeah. Will totally bother. You. I t- you know it, it, it's it's worse than that. I had um, John VanderSlice on the show. Mm. We, we talked about we were talking about Pro Tools, you know, right. he's got this analog right. thing happening out in San Francisco, and and what's su- what surprised me is his big biggest complaint about Pro Tools is how much it makes you want to go through and make everything sound perfect. Exactly. To and the how, point where you're spending days on kick drums, and how
1: easy it is to just to just you'd be like, well, you know. In that 13th bar, the second kick is a little too quiet, you know. And so you spend hours and hours. You can just do it on your laptop at home, you know, just like adjusting one little element. And then a cumulative effect is, uh, is this strange adulteration, you know, which, I mean... You know, considering that back then, before Pro Tools, I mean, before everyone, you know, could do Pro Tools at home and was really good at it, uh, you know, wanting to make some adjustment was like a week of work. Yeah. <laughs> like you know, trying to get get your eight at running and like all this bullshit. Um, I personally, I, I like all the control you get from working digitally, but. You really, there really comes a point where you have to go. I'm going to put this aside and see if that one tiny little hi hat note <laughs> is going to really bother me in a week. <laughs> so you know, and it probably never does. Probably never does. Yeah. I mean, you you hear you hear the tuning so precisely that um, things that seem off key to you. Will not seem off key to you like I'm like two weeks later. It's
0: it's weird. It's weird to think of you know of living in a time when there's no there, there are no mistakes that nothing nothing is intentional right. on record. Ex- exactly, yeah.
1: and you have to you have to really pay attention to your mistakes and and respect
0: them and take care of them. So so you go see Elliot Smith, you're you're, you're blown away by him. He literally changes your life. Yes, which, I mean it, it, it. It's such a rare thing. I mean for a number of reasons, especially I. I it's got to be hard to get up there as as you know as an acoustic guy as a guy with a guitar to really you know try to sort of bring bring people around cuz you cuz you know it's like you know it's a, it's especially like New York City it's an embarrassment right. of riches you can right. go out and see you know 10 right. dudes with acoustic guitars
1: right i mean well certainly the position i was in when Soul Coughing was broken up was i had this audience that had been you know developed by Warner yeah. Brothers and MTV and radio and like all you know and years of touring so I certainly had that to lean on when I went out there and I had people come into the shows, but some people hated it so much.
0: and yeah. it's so a 180. Much. I'm sorry? It's a 180. It's a 180. It was, yeah. you
1: know, there was no drummer. Yeah. You know, like, people had no, no idea what they were looking at. It yeah. was like, it was, to some people it was like a joke. It was like, what? Like, what is he doing?
0: That's, that's the expectation thing again. I mean, yeah. understandable, right? Understandable
1: going oh, to yeah. see a band and then sure. like, this is,
0: this, is, this is not what I signed Ab- up
1: for. Absolutely. And, you know, and I, I had to be really adamant about it. Like, no, this is who I am, you know. This is what's happening. Um, and again, I was enormously fortunate to have had Skittish get out into the, the world and have fans. And so like that nugget of people that wanted to hear those songs that was the that was from that and the minority of the soul coughing fans that liked it acoustic mm. even that preferred it acoustic you know and very much of the minority let me stress that was the nugget from which I built the mm-hmm. career I've had for 14 years as a solo guy uh,
0: amazing you know kind of amazing though that you you really hit the ground running there though i mean yeah. it sounds like you started playing almost immediately.
1: I didn't really have a choice. I I didn't have any money, you Mm. know. Um, You know, it's funny, but in the last two years of Soul Coughing, I had a day job. When we were on MTV, (laughs) I had a day job. I I mean, I wrote a column for the New York Press that was, uh, you know, I had to write every week, had to email in every week, and we would play to 5,000 people, and then the next day, I would be tearing my hair out all day trying to write a, a column, you know. So, like... Um, you know, in fact, I made a good deal more money when I, uh, when I went solo and was just Troy. Yeah, oh, big time. You know, um, big time. Um, I I, by big time I mean I quit my day job. Yeah, you know. Um, but a, I didn't have a choice, and b, you know, I had a record that I owned and was able to sell. Mm. I had a um. Uh, you know, I, I didn't have any expenses. That's, that's the thing about bands is they just accrue all these expenses. Yeah. And if the band's a democracy, it's really hard to fire somebody. It's really hard to, like, sort of look at a spreadsheet and go, we spend too much money on hotel rooms. You know, and get everybody to say, okay, we're going to get cheaper hotel rooms. I mean, it's just it's very inefficient as a business. Um, so when you just run your own shop... And you're able to say, "I don't want to spend money on this. I want to spend money on that." You know, you you end up with a much better situation financially.
0: But you you were, I mean, you were literally, you know, selling like burn burn CDs. I, I, right? I
1: burned the CDs at a, a duping place and sold them off the stage. <laughs> they were blue black blue back CDRs. Yeah, with you know a laser printed white label cover.
0: Was it? Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I, from a, from an ego standpoint, it's just that sounds like a tough transition to make.
1: Sure. I mean, well, but here's the thing. The, the tough part was facing people that hated it on stage and trying to, to face, uh, you know, trying to, to, to keep your face pointed towards the people that liked yeah. it, the minority of the audience that liked it. When you're selling CDs after the show, everybody that comes up wants sure. more of it. So, you know. Also, like I, you know, it's it sounds weird to say like, oh my God, I was finally making money, but I was
0: finally <laughs> making money.
1: So like, you know, the glory index was lowered, but the financial index was raised considerably. Yeah. yeah.
0: Kickstarter is is, is, is kind of perfect for you. <laughs> I mean, well, I
1: don't I don't do Kickstarter or, I do or crowdfunding. Pled- pledge music, yeah. yeah. Um, and in fact, I think crowdfunding is past the place where yep. it is funding, where it's just backing to get something done. I think it really is people signing up for something uh, experiential, early. or they want yeah. uh, you know like a, kind of a, a, a strange artifact they wouldn't be able to get otherwise. It's much more like joining a team and getting stuff than just like, oh, I'd like to see another Zach Braff
0: movie, so here's some money. You know, was it? Uh I mean, you know, we're, we're, was that an idea you were into from 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 the outset, or was that sort of a? Oh, I thought it, I thought it would
1: wouldn't work in a million years. Yeah. I thought it was a terrible idea. And when you know, I sat down with Benji Rogers from Pledge Music, and I was just like, because he just he'd like he just like kept needling me for you know like oh, come on let's meet let's meet let's get coffee let's meet. And I was like, oh fine. And then I you know sat down with him, and I was ready to just be like. Listen, you seem like a nice guy, but I'm just. But you know, I, but by the end of the, meeting, I was like, I kind of want to try this. Yeah. Um. And you know, when I did that, the album of reinterpret soul comic songs, um, I was like, well, you know, I'll 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 try this. I'll I'll just put up some weird stuff that people can get if they pledge, and that's fine. And it was such a runaway hit with the audience um it was like it was shocking to me uh, you know I, it was not what i was expecting i thought it would succeed did not think it would be such a big thing for me
0: speaking of you know speaking of being averse to revisiting songs right. i mean how how did that how did that project happen well i um it began with like you know i'd like to do
1: a tour that's soul loving songs you know just do like a special tour that you know where i get Cat Popper on the bass player, the upright bass player, and a drummer turned out to be Pete Wilhoyt, um, to play soul comic songs and so just do revisit those songs um, and kind of make them what I wanted them mm. to be, which was generally bigger and simpler. Um, so
0: it's a little bit of revisionist history, You're going back and I
1: mean, <laughs> it's not it's it's not history to me. The the, the songs are alive yeah. every day, every time I play it, they're they're a little different. It's like a living, breathing creature that evolves. Um, and so, you know, what I was listening to back then was drum and bass music and hip hop music and house music, mm. you know. The, the first time around. The first time around, like 95, 96. And I couldn't get the band to really do that. They would not do that kind of simple thing of um, just. Mm, bat, mm, mm, bat. Um, and that's what I wanted. I mean, it ended up just being a lot of, like, good musicianness all over the, which is, you know... Jazzy... Uh, you know, too many notes. <laughs> just way too many notes. Um, and I was like, you know what? I want to I give this a shot. I want to see if I can't do it the way I, I had envisioned it at the time. And I, I met um, Good Goose, my collaborator on that, who was... Um, I, you know, I don't think I would have done it if I had not met him, you know, because he, he for one got it and for another thing um, you know, sort of if in the rock world if you're just like, I want this one beat to repeat over and over and over again on a drum machine and I just want this one low note on a bass on a Moog bass to play over and over again people go, well, what are you talking about? That's boring. You put more stuff in, more notes more stuff and then if I were to go to the, the house music world or the hip-hop world, people would be like, w- you sound so weird. What are you trying to do here? So so I erred, obviously, in my career on the side of the rock people. And uh, Goose was the guy who really understood what I was about as a writer and a singer. And also, if I was just like, nope, let's repeat that beat the whole goddamn five minutes, he was... He was a hip hop producer. He knows that's what he does, mm. you know.
0: It's kind of it's kind of amazing that that you know, came together at all the first time around and had the success it did when it's like you you're working with this band to like they're all, they're off doing their own thing and you've got this specific idea but it doesn't really fit in either world. I mean, well, I think I think that the,
1: there were there were sort of two kinds of soul calming fans and one was very much into the band, very much into the musicianliness of the band. And the other were into the songs and uh, and the voice. Um, and obviously, you know, you, you didn't... Uh, you, you know, like, it wasn't, like, one or the other. But there's some people that are just like, man, without the, the sound, um, I don't really dig these. And then there's people who love the songs and love the voice and if I had made the albums as I had wanted to make them they would have yep. they would have dug them just as much I think we would have sold more records mm. I honestly look at the 90s as this incredible missed opportunity yeah. and I do not understand why you know my former bandmates fought so hard against me trying to do what I wanted to do and you know I look at it now and I go, but you could have like made a bunch of money, and you would have been in control of your career. And you know, it just doesn't make sense to me why they why they would have um, why they why they would have behaved like that. I mean,
0: given how much the the industry is is just you know is, right. you know, it doesn't resemble at all what it was in in, in the nineties. Are, are you? Are you happy that you were able to when you when you did that the first time around that you were able to experience it sort of at the twilight of the record industry still being
1: well I certainly would not have a career if it were not for the fact that record labels had the wherewithal to pay for vans yeah. motel rooms having a sound guy with you um, plane tickets for European shows per diems you know twenty bucks a day so you eat at McDonald's. You know that that is what makes your career is you know the there are very few records that are big enough um to instantly transform your career into a profitable career um i wrote i wrote a blog that pissed people off which was that look radiohead wouldn't have existed if they didn't take tour support from their label
0: and from emi i think yeah yeah, from capital
1: emi capital and you know, like somebody paid for transportation and gas
0: and motel rooms, and and that, you know, and you wrote that sort of in as a reaction to their anti record company. No, well, it, was, it was
1: it was a it was a couple of years later, but it was yeah. I had just read something that was like, well, under the new model, we'll all be able to blah blah yeah. blah, and it's like, no, I mean, you know, if they had not. Toured for four years on a record company's dime, they would have just had like kind of a novelty song that people would be like, "Oh yeah, you remember that creep song? Oh, yeah. That was pretty good." You need somebody pushing the bike before you can you pedal need, on your own. Yeah, you just need, you need a goddamn van and some gasoline. Yeah, and there's no way in hell anybody would put that money behind, behind soul coughing today. No way in hell. You know, it's still possible to make a living as a musician, but you know you got to tour Greyhound solo. You know, like there's no, uh, you know, the, just the the bare minimum financial opportunities. Which, by the way, at the time we were like, man, why don't they pay for a bus, man? Warner Brothers sucks. Why don't they? Why don't they pay for us to have a monitor tech? You know, we were we just thought we were getting the shaft, and now like, I know so many artists. You know, within uh, twenty block radius of where we're sitting right now in Brooklyn that I wish to God didn't have to bartend or work in a cubicle. You know, like, I wish to God somebody would pay for a van. H- here is an example. is um, In the ancient days, there was a realm called MySpace.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, you may have heard the story of it. Um, but I had, uh, you know, I was on my MySpace one day. It was like 2008, something like that. And this Japanese band called Uneli's had added me or a friend requested me or whatever he did on MySpace. And I was, I was like, oh, this is interesting. It's a Japanese guy with an afro. <laughs> uh, I'm going to listen to this. And it was amazing. It's this husband and wife. Uh, she plays drums. He plays bass and bugle and raps and loops the bass. Um, and it was just absolutely amazing. And I wrote to him and I was like, man, I love your band. Thanks for the ad. And he wrote back he's like, oh my God, you're my hero. <laughs> you know, I'm so happy to hear from you. And I wrote, I just being cheeky, it was, I was like, Psh, yeah, bring us to Japan. Bring me to Japan, and, and, uh, and we'll tour together. And he was like, sure, totally. Cut to nine months later. <laughs> There's plane tickets and gigs in Japan, and we toured Japan. Like, he, true to his word, and it was a, one of the best tours of my life. Um, just me and Scrap, uh, my cello player. Um, so it was, it was super bare bones. We traveled in their car um you know but it was so great and so when i got back i was like i need to return the favor mm. like you know i they're america music fans they've always wanted to come to america i'm going to get their ass to america and then looking into it you would have to sell about 5000 records to just pay for a van mm. and a guy to drive um, and do the sound and check them into hotels and uh, and, and, you know, motel rooms and like 5,000 records. There's not a lot of records and there's just no way in hell. No way in hell. So, uh, you know, and I'm not talking about like making somebody rich. I'm not talking about making anybody a living. Just come to America and get
0: you to Chicago and San Francisco and Los Angeles and Austin and you know, so how, how do you how do you survive these days? You know, <laughs> especially I, living in New York City.
1: I survive because I'm frugal, um, because I'm. Well, I have an audience. That that is the key. Is if you don't have an audience, you're pretty fucked. Yeah. If you do have an audience, you can be in really good shape. You know, I mean, Louis C.K. is a great example. Um, I don't know if it was him that said this or somebody else. Uh, Said this, but how do how they put it? But like, you know, he'd been working for 25 years yeah. when he all of a sudden sold a million dollars worth of records online. Um, I, you know, I have a crowd that love it. You know, I can tour in a car with a cello player. Uh, I make a pretty good living, I make a lot more money than I did when I was in soul coughing. You know, at the height of there being a shit ton of money in the music business. How, how often you, do you do you play around, though? And Are you... Uh... I play between 50 and 100 shows a year. Okay. Uh, nationally. I regret that I did not put enough energy into getting a, 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 a fan base in Europe. Mm. So that's, like... That's kind of good and bad because it would be a big chunk of money, but it, it would also be a big chunk of time and you know I'm a prolific guy and I've done like you know I I put out so many albums that my manager gets mad at me um, I wouldn't be able to be that prolific if I had you know an additional 30 to 50 gigs in Europe a year
0: um, but yeah, I make a good living, you know. So, what what point do you sit, do you sit down and say, decide you're going to write a book about your your life up so to that point?
1: I had been threatening, and somebody called me on it. Basically, <laughs> I'd been like, "Yeah, I'm going to write this down. I'm going to write a book. I'm going to write a book." Um, and uh, I I got a new manager, and he was like, "All right, let's go get your book deal." <laughs> and he went to Ben Schaefer at uh, DeCapo, and Ben was like totally let 's do a book, hmm. and so, like within a month, I had a book deal, yeah, and uh you know and i 'd ri- written like fifty pages or something, and then immediately was like all right well i 'm not going to do anything until someone yells at me, and so you know, a year later, Ben called and was like, "Hey, you know we gave you a bunch of money to write a book, <laughs> and that 's when I wrote the book
0: yeah was it was it um was it was it the same as the book you'd been threatening? I mean, did it did it turn out the way you had anticipated? Pretty much. Actually, um, my initial
1: idea was it was called the Book of Drugs. You know, my initial idea was not to put anything but the drug stories on it. But um, it was actually a, bu- a bunt. I I just sort of because my philosophy of when writing it was just like I'm just gonna I'm just here to tell the good stories. Yep. You know, like the funny stories, the interesting stories, stuff I tell people at dinner. That's what I'm writing down. I'm not. I have no perspective on my life, whatever. Um, and so I just went around to friends of mine and was like, when we've had dinner and we've, you've told me stories and I've told you stories, what would you want to read? Mm. And, they, and I wrote down all the ones they wanted, and there were many that were outside the realm of the drug stories. It was going to be,
0: I mean, you know, it turned into a story of your life. I mean, yeah, it, it, it really, like, they, they fit together in such a way yeah, that it's a, a it, narrative.
1: It's a full-on memoir. Yeah. And um, there's no chapter breaks in the book. Which Wait. is a real pain in the ass on the Kindle, by the way. <laughs> uh, well, here's what happened: is it was one of those things that, like, I just didn't know how to do. Hmm. I've never written long form prose before, so I just wrote it and sent it to um, uh, Ben Schaefer, and was like, "All right, now I'm going to hear some advice about uh, chapter breaks." And you know, after he read it a couple weeks later, he, he he was like, "Yeah, man, what a good idea to not have chapters. That's really interesting." I was like, yeah, sure, why not? Yeah, I meant that. Um, but it's a pain in the ass on the Kindle. Why?
0: Because they, they, they. Oh, just you know, there's you know, it's t- stopping and starting. It's oh right. Not, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, I, and a lot of people have been like, oh my god, I read that book in one sitting. Yeah. And I'm like, well, that's a compliment on the book, but I think that's got a lot to do with the fact that there's no natural <laughs> you don't, you don't, resting don't points. It, yeah, yeah, you don't know where
0: to end it. Um, I mean, you, you certainly there certainly wasn't anything, as far as I could tell, that you didn't want to talk about you were very very candid in that book,
1: I think the only thing people th- who are you know self revelatory don't want to talk about is their taxes mm. you know I don't think people want to talk about their money yeah um but uh I'm willing to basically talk about anything yeah yeah so you,
0: you weren't it seems like you weren't afraid of hurting people's feelings
1: well, I mean I had to make a choice and it, it was to be um to be honest or to kind of adulterate it, and I, you know I wanted to I wanted to err on the side of art and um, you know it was funny because i I uh, the, the big lesson of writing a memoir is subjectivity uh, so I you know many people I called up and I was like listen, do you remember that time that dot 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 i 'm going to talk about it, and I remember this one specific f- ex girlfriend that I that I called and I was like, Look, I'm gonna I'm writing a book. And she said, Well of course, you know, I'm ready for you to put this story and this story and this story in it and it's gonna be hard, but you know, I can accept it. And I was like, I don't remember any of those. Those are fascinating stories yeah. that I don't remember at all. And then I told her that I was like, no but I'm gonna put this, this, and this And she's like, I do not remember those at all. And then after the book came out, I was on the road and I, I saw a mutual friend of ours, and I was like, "Isn't it weird that she didn't remember this, this, and uh, but she did remember this and this, which I didn't remember." And she was like, "I don't remember any of that. Do you remember this?"
0: Well, you also have the um, sort of the, the, the added layer of hard drugs on top of that. I mean, the yeah. fact that you were able to remember any of that is pretty impressive.
1: I was pretty goddamn lucid the whole time, yeah. and I was I I was in. I had a fair amount of control over my using until the end of days, so I I feel like um, I'm subject only to the normal strictures of an ability to remember stuff. Yeah,
0: I, I didn't feel like I was in a fog, really. Why did Why did that become Why did drugs become the central thesis of the book?
1: Well, because that that was what we pitched to the book company was you know I, I'm gonna write one of those terrible books about a guy who does a bunch of drugs <laughs> then stops yeah you know um, and I have basically I just have a lot of good drug stories funny drug stories interesting drug stories um, and I also had this notion of writing the drug book that w- contained no badassery you know like no guns or jail okay you know it was like Buster Keaton is a dope fiend just yeah, middle not class Tony kid Montana. yeah yeah yeah. So, and I I thought that was an interesting angle of uh, uh, just being uh, kind of hapless and non badass.
0: Yeah, but it, I mean, there, it's such. I mean, especially like, especially heroin. Like, it's such a it's such a leveler of people. I mean, everybody ends up at you know at the same level to some degree. It seems like.
1: Well, I mean, first of all, that's 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 not exactly true because I know plenty of people who have. Uh, who had heroin problems that don't have the kind of intrinsic condition that is being an addict or having a propensity to be an addict, which for me and for a lot of other people, it's like there's no drug I can use without completely going off the deep end. Yep. And it seems ridiculous, but it's true that anything I put in my body, I will go off the deep end. Um but then there's other people that I know um, that had dope problems, and then you know they they gave it up, and they can drink wine and smoke weed and all that stuff.
0: I can't do that. It's just do, do you have to find like analogs? You have to find actual like replacements, other things to be addicted to. Well, I mean that that's just going to happen anyway. Yeah. But it, you know,
1: but mostly it's I guess the short way to put it is I have friends. I have a lot of friends. Fucking fantastic lives who I want to hang out with and I want to be like.
0: Yeah. yeah. Were you? I mean, obviously this isn't the case, but but you know, given the fact that it was it was a, a book of drugs and these were you, you felt the most interesting stories of your life. Were you worried early on that you were going to get boring when you stopped?
1: When I stopped doing drugs, yeah. well, I included a lot of stuff after I got clean in the book. There's like a story of me going to Ethiopia and. You know, uh, there's a bunch of other stuff that I specifically included to depict how life is interesting. Yeah. Because um, because life got really interesting when I got clean. For one thing, because I did not have to spend a significant amount of my time yeah. napping. Yeah. Like, I could be awake all day and go do stuff. And spend money on other and things. And spend money on other things. And, you know, I did a lot of traveling and... You know, so did I worry about it? I certainly worried about it, but it it was an unfounded worry because, I mean, life is a lot more just kind of your base level of having stories interesting about your day yeah. is way more interesting. You and know. your ability to remember them. <laughs> yeah, was certainly your ability. Yeah.
0: Did 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 it. You know, the, the, I mean, the, you know, you're, you already you already started this uh, acoustic career before you got clean. Mm-hmm. Did did getting clean have any discernible impact on the music?
1: Certainly, um, I think I have become a better songwriter for one thing. Um, but it's there's a lot to be said for having to start again. Mm. And when I had uh, gotten clean, my receptors were burned out. I could not write, I could not do anything. So having to really sort of reconstruct my entire process of songwriting um, was invaluable. I mean, it really, you know, not not a lot of people get the chance to really kind of go back and examine the essence of what they do from square one.
0: Uh, of, of trying to figure out how to write a song again?
1: Yeah, oh yeah, totally. I mean, yeah, I, I had... Um, yeah, I was, you know, like completely. It was completely new to me when I, um, when I started again. Yeah. You know, and
0: I mean, obviously the, the band experience was was a bad one, but you know, it seems. I mean, the the upshot of being in a band is is having people to, to bounce things off or to theoretically, I guess, take yeah. the song different places. I mean, in
1: this, yeah, I mean, sir I, I, yes, that that certainly happened in Soul Coughing. It was the was the was you could come in with a more fragmentary idea and it could become something real, which allowed, you know, if it, if it had just been up to me starting in about 96, you know, I would not have been able to finish anything, you know, but I could bring in something half-assed yeah. and just hand it to the band, which, you know, at a certain point I ju- I was just like, they're not going to play what I asked them to play. <laughs> so I should just bring in, you know, some, you know, half-baked, whatever. Um, but more more so than that, it's just I destroyed my brain, just destroyed it, um, and uh, it just was necessary for me to really. It's hard to describe, but like I had to do a lot of journaling to really like think, you know, what am I thinking about? And I had to really think about the way I thought about chords and about rhythm, and you know, what was acceptable. Um, in terms of like, I'm very into repeating structures and cyclical stuff, um, and I'm criticized for my songs being similar, which is an absolutely fair criticism uh, because it's absolutely true. Um, you know, and I had to figure out like, what is it that I I like about that thing? Why do I want to repeat it? How much repetition is acceptable? You know, these kind of very basic questions of how you. Just do it.
0: It seems to me when you're at that point, though, and, and you're getting that abstract about things, uh, do, do you? Did you end up calling your own abilities into question at that point?
1: Fuck yeah, I did. Yeah. I mean, I mean, in the beginning, it was like it was gone. I mean, it, like I could not write a goddamn thing, yeah. and it' gone. You know, like like I tried to write. Somebody set me up to do a demo tape for. I think it was Atlantic. You know, and the record companies were still a factor at the time. Mm-hmm. And I threw something together, and it was just, it was garbage. It was, it was, so, it was so embarrassing. You, and didn't you even knew it, it as
0: you were putting it together? I didn't
1: know. I was just like, whatever. I mean, I'd lost my mind. My yeah. mind, I had nothing. Um, listening to it years later, it was like, oh, my God, that was terrible. You know? Um, yeah. And it certainly, certainly, whatever it was, it wasn't sub- substantial enough for me to continue working on.
0: But that's the only thing you can really point to in your long career that you really you're the, not on base. You're not. Uh,
1: I mean, yeah that that was the worst yeah. thing I ever did. <laughs> Literally the worst thing I ever did. I suppose you know my first band when I was 15 wasn't that good, but you know. Yeah.
0: Um, and and I've had you for long enough, but I did want to I did want to ask you before we left. I. Do you know? If, do you know if anybody in the band read the book?
1: No, I don't. No, you know, it was. My suspicion is that if they've read it, they've only read the parts about them. Um, they searched
0: and, on their name and and,
1: and if they, they and they didn't read it names
0: actually technically weren't even in the they book. weren't
1: even in there. But they, I named them by their instruments. Um, it just what all the pseudonyms I came up with were just terrible. I was you know so, and it was like. You know, pretty much everybody else, I I was obligated to come up with a pseudonym with yeah. for because I, you know, with them I could identify them by instrument and it was clear enough. Yeah. So believe me, if I could have called somebody, that one guy from France, you know, rather than it's funny François. though. I mean, isn't, isn't
0: the idea of a pseudonym so they, that person can't be traced back? I mean, anybody can just read the liner notes. Dude, I
1: mean, any any of this stuff. Um, there's not a goddamn secret in that book no there's um everyone when I came out and did press for that book everybody knew who everybody was yeah
0: you you just didn't want to keep using those names yeah well legally um oh
1: are you talking about the 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 pseudonyms for the band members yeah who who
0: again like obviously like as far as trying to figure out who people are that was a pretty easy one
1: yes but everybody else it was like you know they worked on this record Wikipedia that record, and you know who it is. But you just didn't want to write the drummer's name over (laughs) and over again. I mean, if I had... One thing about picking pseudonyms legally is they cannot sound at all like um, the the actual name. Can't, you know, have the same first letter, can't run, and so like, all the pseudonyms in there are ridiculous. (laughs) They're just really... Um, just completely uh, separated from the actual name of the person, and with those guys, it was like, all right, uh, Franklin and uh, Jehoshaphat—you know, just like <laughs> these random names out yeah. of nowhere. But because they could be identified by their instruments, it was, yeah, it was a, uh, uh it, it, was a, it was it was a luxury. Mid- yeah. It
0: was, yeah. I guess I'm asking. Uh, why? Why? Why not just use their names? Why not use their actual names? Yeah. Because they would sue me. Oh my That's god! So, so th- there's enough of a protection there. Just you know, if somebody can still be traced back. Um.
1: Yes, very much so. Yeah. yeah. Um. The, you know, it's also in. Like I was very careful to phrase everything. Like this is what I remember yeah. of my experience. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's what you learn writing a memoir is your experience is so subjective and everybody has an entirely different um, take on what what went down. And I, I went through my journals and digitized them last year. I just well, like had boxes of them and I was like, I want to get rid of these. And there were some that I went through and I realized that I had gotten some chronologies wrong hmm. in, in, in the book you know stuff from college or whatever yeah. but like you know just like really embarrassing like like wow i that i have evidence that what i remember is not yeah. true
0: there you have it. That was Mike Doty of Soul Coughing, of, of his terrific solo career, of The Book of Drugs. That was a fantastic book that came out in 2012, uh, a memoir. It's, it's every bit as, as sort of kind of raw and harsh as A, as you would expect a book called Book of Drugs to be, and B, as you would want a rock and roll memoir to be. Um, you know, Mike was in, uh, was in Soul Coughing pretty early on, had, had a lot of success, has led a, a very, very interesting life. Since then, so I do highly recommend you check that out. And speaking of interesting things that Mike is doing with his life, uh, the the reason why we had him on the show, or I should say, the, the way that I realized that he would come onto our little uh, boing boing podcast was uh, a couple of weeks prior to that, he had played my friend Joe's uh, yard sale in, in Greenpoint. So I figured, you know, if he's, he's out there, he's in the world. He's playing shows. He's playing yard sales. I bet we could get him to sit down for forty-five minutes and and come to our podcast. So uh, thanks to Mike for, for sitting down with uh, sitting down with me at the Kellogg Diner in Williamsburg. Uh, I guess that's a plug for the Kellogg Diner. You know, if you're you're off the Lormar stop in uh, in Williamsburg. And you need hash browns at three o'clock in the afternoon. It, it's hard to miss. It's a big, really, really large, shiny place uh, immediately off the train stuff. So thanks, uh, thanks so much to Mike for for taking the time to do that. Uh, thanks to Brian as always for uh, for editing this thing together. Thanks to Mark and everybody else at the Boing Boing Podcast Network. Thanks to you, the listener, for being a listener of the show. If you liked what you heard, you can rate us on iTunes. You should rate us on iTunes. Uh, minimum of five stars. I, you know, if you find a way of doing. Doing more than five stars, and then please do that. I, you could sign up for multiple accounts. I'm not recommending you do that. I I could possibly have my my podcast provoked if I recommend such things. But um, at least what you know, one five-star review will will certainly do. Uh, you can uh, send us an email. It's rolcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Tumblr. That's also Rolcast, but that's dot Tumblr.com. Uh, got all sorts of great shows lined up. I've actually got three three uh, three interviews this week I'm, I'm off to one in about an hour or so uh, so, uh, so stick around we will be back next week with another episode of R.I.Y.L.